Well, good morning, everybody. One of the, the great things about being a, an unemployed preacher is, uh, is you can't get fired. And so that's, you, you pretty much say anything, right? No, not, not exactly right. But um, yeah, I'm in, a, in this place of, of transition in my life. And, and, um, and so I've had opportunities to, to go to different places and, and spend time in different churches. And I am overjoyed, quite literally, to, to be a part of this ministry. Um, I, I know of this ministry. Uh, by way of my relationship with Matt, I know Matt, hang out with Matt on occasion and, and have followed your story and your story is a wonderful story. And so when Matt asked me to come and, and share some things, launch this new series that you're launching today on the, on the, on the, on the two chapters, chapters two and three in the book of Revelation, uh, where Jesus addresses seven churches, we'll get to that in just a moment. But when he asked me uh, to come and share, it was just an easy yes, uh, because you, you serve as a model for so many ministries, um, not just here locally, but across Canada. Your story is told and what you're doing, what you continue to do, just hearing about Harrison and all of that, it's wonderful. And so uh, bless you. Uh, thank you for setting that example. And I, I just pray for God's continued grace on you and on your leadership as, as you continue to do what you're doing because the enemy hates you and wants to destroy you. And uh, so people need to be praying for you. And, and so, um, so we will continue to do that. And uh, again, my joy being here. It's good to be out in, in the valley. Um, I'm a Mennonite. I live in the city. Not many Mennos out in the city. The church I planted, it's a Mennonite brethren church, but there's about five Mennos in the church. And so when we get to come, when I get to come out here and hang out with my team, I love that. Uh, you know, when I talk about Vereniki and Farmer Sausage and Ralkuken and Schwiebach, you get me. And so that's great. In the city, they're just confused, all just absolutely confused when I talk like that. My, my mom lived part of her life in Yarrow, and so um, I, I know this area. My dad, he went to MEI as the second grad class of, of MEI, I don't, just like 1948 or something like that. My dad is still alive. My mom was passed a couple years ago. And so, so thank you again. It's good to be with you. Um, I invite you to take your Bibles out. Turn, if you haven't already, to the book of Revelation. Like I said, we're looking at chapters two and three in this series. What we're doing today, however, in our time is looking at verses one to seven. Because it is the launch of a new series today, especially the launch of a series coming out of this book, the book of Revelation, some background needs to be given because one of the things that I've experienced over time in the church is that people have this weird relationship with the book of Revelation. There are pockets within the church where they have this great fascination with the book. They give a lot of time and energy to the study of it. And then there is a larger pocket within the church that's scared to death of it. Like their Bible has 65 books, right? It stops at Revelation chapter 1. They dare not go into it. And that's a tragedy because it's obviously a wonderful book that promises a blessing to everyone who hears it. And so it's one that does need to be studied. But it needs to be studied with some understanding of what it's all about. First off, what is it about? Well, the, the name Revelation tells us a little bit about what the book does. It reveals things to us. It, in fact, unveils things for us. We'll talk about that more in, in greater detail in just a moment. But the book of Revelation, like other books, books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, some pockets in the New Testament as well, like Matthew 25, Mark 13, 
2 Thessalonians, is part of a, a genre in the Bible that is referred to as apocalyptic writing. What do we need to know about apocalyptic writing? Well, there are some things that mark it, some things that stand out about it that's really important to note as we, as you enter this series. Because if you don't recognize some things about this type of literature, you'll make some mistakes as you walk through it. So let me give you a, a, just a brief background on some of the things that mark this, this genre. One is the abundant use of imagery and symbolism and simile and metaphor. You'll see them pop up again and again. Images pop up over and over. We're going to see some images in, in our seven verses today, images of stars and trees and things like that. Oftentimes, or I should say occasionally, the images are defined for us in the book of Revelation itself. But most often, you have to go to other places in the Bible to understand what the author of Revelation is referring to. In fact, some suggest that there is as many as 550 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. Not one direct quote, however, just references, inferences to the Old Testament text. In addition, the word like is used again and again. It's a key word in the book of Revelation. We'll read of things like, I heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet. Or his face, speaking of Jesus, was like the sun shining and so on. So that's the first thing we need to know. Images, metaphors, symbols, similes, and so forth. The second thing that we need to recognize, and this is vitally important for us today, is that it is, it is dualistic in its writing. Meaning what? Meaning it's meant for both a present and futuristic reading. And therefore, Revelation is as much about today as it is about a day to come. So it's not just a book, a letter about a future time, but it is, it is as relevant today as, as that day to come. To paraphrase uh, Daryl Johnson, who wrote a great book on the book of Revelation called Discipleship on the Edge, he writes... It seeks, Revelation seeks to set the present day in light of the unseen realities of the future. So it has a futuristic aspect. But like I said, it's dualistic. Because it also seeks to set the present day in light of the invisible realities of the present, of the here and now. Meaning it tears the veil off the, the very present spiritual realm and it allows us to glimpse in it or into it. Dualistic, like I said. Some further background on Revelation in particular, not just the genre itself, is its author. Who is the author of the book? The author is John the Apostle. John the Apostle who wrote a, a gospel that bears his name, who also wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. John, at the writing of this letter, is, has been sequestered to the island of Patmos. Think a first century version of, of Alcatraz. He had been sequestered, sent there, imprisoned there because of his testimony of Christ. But while he's there in Patmos, he is given this revelation and he authors the book. But how he came to write it is unique in contrast to other books of the Bible. Just if you can take a look at verse 1 of chapter 1, we see the layout of it there. 
excuse me, we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that's Jesus, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And we read later that John is told to write down the things that he sees, but this is unique. We we have this revelation, this apocalypse of God given to Jesus who revealed it to John, but how did he reveal it to John? Via an angel, and he writes it down. Who did he write it to? Well, every letter has a recipient, and the recipient of revelation is seven churches that existed in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. Seven churches. Not six, not eight, seven churches. Were there more churches in Asia Minor at the time? Yeah. Colossae, for example, where we get the letter written to the Colossian church, but they're not part of this seven. Just seven, these seven. Seven churches are written to. Why is that? Important. Well, it's important because numbers are hugely significant in apocalyptic literature. Three is important. Seven is important. Ten is important. Twelve is important. Or multiple multiples thereof. Six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. When you have the epitome of evil and you have this multiplication of six, 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 the mark of the beast. Seven is the mark of God. It's a, it's a mark of completion. It's, it's a mark, mark of perfection and, and creation. And therefore, that Jesus addresses seven churches tells the reader something very important. It tells the reader that he is addressing a perfect representation of churches for all time and all place. To quote J.I. Packer, He writes, and you can read this on the screen behind me, these letters were as relevant to the church 300 years ago as they will be if God so delays to those 300 years hence. John Stott also speaks into this, and he affirms what what Packer states when writing, the seven churches of Asia, though historical, and they were, represent the local churches of all ages and of all lands. And to borrow uh, from Daryl Johnson just one more time, he writes, it turns out that the seven churches of Asia embody every major issue with which the church has struggled in every age, in every cultural setting. And therefore, here's why I'm hammering down on this. Here's why this is so important for you and for me. What, What Jesus reveals, to these seven churches is as relevant to central community church today as it was for the churches then. The challenge is whether we'll have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to central community church today. That's the challenge. It's for you It will continue to be for you as you go week by week by week through this series. The challenge for you is is the call to listen and hear. So with with that challenge in mind, let me just press pause here and pray for us before we embark looking at these, these these verses today. So Father, I do pray. I pray to that end that we would have ears to hear today. Um, 
What do you have for us? We want to be good listeners. So, so I pray against distraction. I pray against the enemy. I pray that we would be good soil, receptive soil. I, I, I pray that even good distraction, things that we're looking ahead to, good things would be laid aside, laid aside and we would have, again, ears to hear what you have for us. To the glory of your name and our good, I pray. Amen. Amen. So let's get rolling by looking at verse 1. Let me read it for you. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's just stop there. All seven letters, as you will see in the weeks ahead, begin in very similar fashion. They each begin with a greeting to the angel of the particular church, and then they give a a description of Jesus that builds upon a a vision that John sees of Jesus back in chapter 1. So let's neat-nick this a little bit. First of all, what do we know about the city of Ephesus where this church is located? Well, we know a few things about it. One is we know that the gospel is introduced to the city of Ephesus back in Acts chapter 18 via uh, two individuals, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who are, are soon joined thereafter by a man named Apollos. Paul himself drops in on Ephesus during his second missionary journey briefly, but then doubles back and spends three years in Ephesus establishing the church there. Upon his exit, he raises up Timothy, who pastors the church. If you've ever read First and Second Timothy, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus when he receives those letters from Paul. Timothy then leaves. He is soon martyred thereafter. And John, the same John that writes the book of Revelation, takes over before being sent to Patmos. That's Ephesus. A little bit of Ephesus. But if that's Ephesus, then what or who is the angel of this church? Because it begins, look, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Who's this angel? What is this angel? Three commonly held views. The first, people hold to this particular view, that the angel speaks of an angel, an angelic being. That's that's one view. Another view is that the angel is a reference to the lead pastor of the church, the senior pastor, the the teaching pastor. That's another commonly held view. And then a third view is that it speaks of the general ethos of the church, sort of the angelness of the church. Every church has a, a certain vibe and so maybe it's speaking to the, to the ethos, the vibe of the church. What do I think for whatever it's worth? I think it's a reference to an angel. I think it's a reference to an angelic being. I say this for two reasons. One, because I want you to notice, and it's important to notice, what Jesus holds in his right hand in verse 1. Just take a look at it. He holds seven stars in his right hand. Why is that significant? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 20, we read there that the stars are the seven angels of the churches. Meaning what? Meaning that stars is being used metaphorically to speak of the angels. And therefore, angels are not being used to speak metaphorically of anyone else. Like a senior pastor, for example. Or like a general ethos for example. Secondly, angels, as you continue on going through the book of Revelation, always are referring to angelic beings in Revelation and nothing else. As as people 
who hold to the belief that angels exist, and we do, right? As people who believe that angels exist, and they don't just sit on clouds playing harps, but they serve a purpose and, and a role in God's kingdom, could it be possible that angels may serve a purpose and a responsibility over local ministries? And therefore, if true, is it possible that this letter is as much for the angel of the local church as it is for the people in the church itself? Is it possible? I mean, Paul himself asks in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that we are to judge angels? You ever thought about which ones? Could it possibly be that we are to judge the angels of the churches that we're involved in? Maybe. And later in the same letter, he writes that women are to have a symbol of authority on their heads. Why? Because of the angels. But if you disagree with me and my take on this and you believe angel is a reference to the lead pastor of the local church, I'm sure Matt would be great with that, right? Right? Probably love to be thought of as very angelic. So when he starts teaching through this, just note where he lands, all right? After addressing, after addressing the angel, Jesus is described as holding seven stars in his right hand and walking amongst seven golden lampstands. Now, what are these lampstands? Well, again, if you double back, look at chapter one, you'll notice there that lampstands are a reference to the church itself. And that's an important picture, is it not? That the church is referred to as a lampstand. What, what image is meant to be conveyed by that? Well, the, the church is to shed light, is to shine into dark places, it's, it's to be a city on the hill, it's, it's not to be covered. So these lampstands are the seven churches, but we also have learned already that the stars that Jesus holds in his right hand refer to the angels, but that Jesus holds these angels in his right hand tells us that Jesus has authority over the churches. Supreme authority over the churches. Uh, right hand in the Bible is always a reference to authority. Jesus ascends to heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. It's a position of authority. This is authority language here. In, in simple terms, this image is telling us that Jesus is in charge of the church. After all, Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, as Peter writes. The, the church is his bride. He, he loves her and he, he purchased her by shedding his, his blood for her. As, as Paul writes in Colossians 1, and you can read this behind me, Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Well, what this means then is that Jesus is in charge of this ministry. That all leadership in this ministry from elders and staff on down serve at his good pleasure. That's what this means. It means they take their marching orders from, from Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And therefore, any authority that you may have, I may have, is a board authority. He's in charge. He, he's the cornerstone. He's the straight edge that we build our lives off of. By the way, as an aside... The authority that Jesus possesses over the church helps us make sense of his warning that he gives later. More on that in a, in a bit. If, if you missed it in this description of Jesus, I want you to notice in verse 1 that Jesus doesn't rule from afar. 
but he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Back, back in chapter 1, verse 13, he is described as being in the middle of the lampstands. And I love that picture. That, that Jesus is here. That Jesus walks amongst us. That he's not an absentee landlord, that he doesn't stand in the heavenlies, even though he is in the heavenlies, but by his spirit, he is here and he knows and, and he sees. And that should encourage us because sometimes we can wonder, can't we? Does, does God even care? Does God know? Does God see? Is he involved? And what we have again here is Jesus walking amongst the amongst the lampstands. And because he's here and nothing is hidden from him, he begins verses two and three by saying, I know. Let's take a look at what he knows by reading the verses. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. What commendation? I mean, this isn't flattery. This is commendation. And therefore, there is so much about this church that is great. I, I know of your patient endurance for my namesake. I mean, if Jesus wrote a letter like that to you, what a wonder, what an encouragement. I know your patient endurance. I know of you calling out those who claim to be apostles but aren't. I know how you continue to work and you haven't grown weary. I know that. I mean, what encouraging words from, from the supreme one over the church. I know all of that. Later in, in verse 6, Jesus adds, yet, you, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans most likely were false teachers. And Jesus says, I hate their work. I hate what they do. I hate what it leads to. And you also hate the things I hate. It's commendation. And yet, there's something else that Jesus knows of this church that follows his commendation. Take a look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Those are sobering words. I mean, hearing Jesus say to us, I, I have this against you. I commend you for all you do, but there's something casting a shadow over it all. You've abandoned the love you had at first. What is this abandoned love? Well, it can't be a reference to the truth of the word of God, for they were dedicated to the defense of it. Can't be that. And it can't be a reference to the name of Jesus, for they were enduring patiently for his name's sake. It can't be those things. What then? I mean, these people were busy doing the work of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus. And so what did they abandon? Well, the answer is their love of Jesus. 
Just think about this, central. Think about this. This church persevered. They fought the good fight. They, they stood up for sound doctrine. They, they put themselves in places, I am sure, they put themselves in places of great discomfort, all the while not loving Jesus like they used to. And as, as we enter this new year, I wonder about you and I wonder about me. Because we can get so busy about ministry, can't we? We can get so busy doing, even doing good things. So I wonder about you and I wonder about me. You see, it, it's possible to do great things for God motivated by no love of God at all. As Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount of those who prophesied, drove out demons, and did the miraculous in the name of Jesus. But Jesus says, I did not know you. No relationship with you. I never knew you. Of the religious in his day, Jesus said, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In Ephesus, as we find them here, are following the same pattern. One day, Jesus, in his ministry life, as recorded in the Gospels, was posed the question, Jesus, of all the commandments given, which is, which is the greatest? And without hesitation, he said in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment which is why he says later in the upper room to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. First and foremost, abide in my love. Dwell in, in my love. Make, make your home with me in my love as, my, as I make my home in you. It, it is worth noting that, that Paul, who writes a letter to the Ephesians, ends that letter by writing, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. But now, sadly, 40 years later, Jesus declares that they had abandoned their love for him, a, a lovelessness hidden under so much commendable work. With the time that I have remaining, I, I want to address just one all-important question um, together. That question is, how do, we, how do we recapture a love for Jesus that was ours at one time, but has since been abandoned? I mean, if this is you, if, if this resonates with you, how do we recapture it? Well, the nice thing, the beautiful thing about our text is that Jesus gives us an answer in verse 5. Let me read verse 5, and as I do, just notice the answer that Jesus gives, and then we'll double back and we'll take a look at it in greater detail. But Jesus begins verse 5 by saying this, Remember, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove, the, remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Did you hear the call? The directive of Jesus, it's a threefold call. If you want to recap, capture a love for Jesus, it begins first with the call to remember. Remember from where you have fallen. In, in other words, remember the good old days. 
as the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 10, can you recall the former days? Can, can you remember a time where you just couldn't get enough of Jesus? Like Jesus was the air you breathed. A, a time when you lived with a reckless abandonment for the sake of Jesus. A time where the things of this world weren't pursued ahead of Jesus. A time where your Christian faith wasn't so domesticated and safe. Can we remember a time like that? Where a scratch on your roof or the Wi-Fi going down for 10 minutes or being 10 minutes late didn't send you through the roof? Can you remember that time? Can you remember a time where your walk with Jesus wasn't as much about doctrine and dogma, but the person of Jesus? Can you remember that time? One of my favorite verses is, is found in 1 Peter where Peter writes, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Can you remember a time like that? Perhaps you have to go back decades. If so, then go back. Do, do whatever it takes. To, to a missions trip, perhaps, where you walked with unabashed faith in Jesus. Go back to it. Go back to a summer camp experience where your whole life was dedicated to telling others about Jesus. Go back there if you need to. To a hardship, perhaps, where, where total dependence was placed on Jesus. Because if he didn't show up, it wasn't going to work. Go back. Remember then. Can you? And if you can't, then can I encourage you to start making some memories in 2020? So that when somebody perhaps calls you to remember in 2022 or 2025 or 2030, you can remember 2020. You go, I mean, I remember when I was walking with Jesus in 2020. We're doing this. We gave up this. We, we did that. Every morning, just me and Jesus. Every night, me and Jesus telling people about Jesus. Everything filtered through my love, my relationship with Jesus. That's a resolution. So Jesus says, you want to recapture that love? Remember, remember those days. It's followed, secondly, in verse 5, by a call to repent. Remember from where you have fallen and, and repent. Re repent of what? Well, first off, repent of abandoning the love that you had at one time for Jesus. Repent of perhaps not guarding your heart, heart and mind in Christ Jesus and allowing other things, even good things like ministry, eldering, pastoring, leading Bible studies, Sunday school classes, missions trips, setting up, tearing down, playing on the worship team, even good things like that, getting in the way of your love for Jesus. 
Repent of, of, of allowing busyness or the pursuit of stuff or the craving of power to become all important. Repent of being more, more Martha than Mary. We know that story. Martha, you, you're distracted by so many things, but only one thing is, is important, and Mary has chosen the better part, and that will not be taken away from her. So possibly repent of that. Connected to this may be the, the need for repentance of ongoing sin. Maybe a particular sin that you've been practicing, 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 making excuses for. Not, nothing hinders a love for Jesus more than the ongoing practice of unrepented sin. Nothing. It will absolutely suck the life and passion out of you and for Jesus most of all. You see, here's the thing. Our lack, for, our lack of love for Jesus doesn't lead to sin. It's our sin that leads to, most prominently, our lack of love for Jesus. Sin practiced, ongoing, unrepentant. Sin grieves the spirit, quenches the spirit. The first fruit of the spirit is love. It dissipates our love for Christ. So maybe it's that. I, I, I don't know you, but, but I have to assume that there's at least some of us here just know when I bring up something that we're doing, that, that we're again making excuses for and we haven't dealt with, we haven't really been serious about it, you go, yeah, that, that, that's me. Can I encourage you in that? Because here's the thing. Hear the call of Jesus. Jesus is not calling you to repent because he's looking to, 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 to punish. But that you would regain a place of, of love and intimacy. He with you, you with him. Can you feel that? This is most important. Jesus is saying, this is most important to me. It needs to be most important to you. What is it, Jesus? Love. Love for me, my love for you. And this is getting in the way. So maybe it's that. But perhaps what needs to be repented of isn't a, a sin of commission, but a sin of omission. Perhaps what's dampening your love of Jesus as a resistance is something he's calling you to, but you're putting, you're putting it off. Maybe it's that. You remember the restoration of Peter? Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Peter, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter was fishing. Jesus says, nothing wrong with fishing, but Peter, I have something in mind for you that goes beyond that. I want you to fish for men. Perhaps right now you're fishing and you know Jesus is calling you to something else. So if you love me, please listen to my call on your life. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. And finally, what may be dampening your love for Jesus is the love you've 
chosen not to extend to another. As John writes elsewhere, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Perhaps there's a relationship that needs to be reconciled, a conversation, a phone call. Jesus calls us to that too. And so we are called to remember and we are called to repent. And finally, we are called to return. We are called to return and do the works we did at first. Jesus says that as well in verse 5. Do the works you did at first. Does that instruction bug you at all? Do the works you did at, did at first. Here's why I ask. In verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works. But in verse 4, he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. But now he calls us to do the works we did at first. Does that bug you? Bugs me, man. I mean, Jesus can't mean that we go back to doing what we've done in the past, can he? I mean, he just called this church to turn from them by repenting of them. So how do we reconcile this? Well, first off, we need to remember that Jesus isn't against the practices of verses 2 and 3. He commends the, the church for them, in fact. What Jesus is against is the motive behind them. Love for Jesus wasn't the impulse behind their activity. And thus, the works that Jesus speaks of in verse 4 are the works, it seems, that fostered their love for Jesus. Works that kindled their love for Jesus. Like what? We're not told. But I think we can guess. Perhaps times of solitude where it was just them and Jesus. Perhaps a season of fasting where they wanted to hunger for Jesus most of all. Maybe evenings of prayer. Maybe mornings of worship. Maybe an ongoing commitment to simplicity. Maybe ongoing sacrificial giving. Maybe saying no to something and being ready to say yes to another. Whatever it was, they were works that kindled their love of Jesus and led to the works that Jesus commended them for in verses 2 and 3. That's what I think Jesus is getting at. And the reason why Jesus is getting at it like he does is because motive, motive for what we do matters vitally to God. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of man and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if you go to the seminar in a couple Sundays, you hear about giving and finances, and you choose to cut a check and you give it all away, but your motive behind it isn't love, it gains you nothing. Think about that. And if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. I was watching a, a movie on Netflix a couple of nights ago called The Two Popes. One of, one of the things said by one of them impacted me greatly, especially in the lead up to this morning. One of the popes said, truth is vital, but without love, it's unbearable. 
Ephesus was committed to truth, but that commitment was void of love. And make no mistake, that matters to Jesus. Duty, even duty that receives the commendation of Jesus isn't pleasing to Jesus if it is absent of a love of Jesus. Motive matters so much to Jesus that he says in verse 5 that if you do not repent of your lack of love for me, I will remove your lampstand from its place. Hmm. Three to four hundred churches shut down in Canada every year. I wonder how many shut down because the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand has removed them over their lack of love for him. A church that has no love for Jesus is, is no use to Jesus. So he removes it. That's how important motive matters. My time is done. Let, let me close with the great promise of Jesus given in verse 7. What is the promise to those who remember, repent, and return, the promise is they will be granted to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This promise takes us back to the beginning of the Bible, and it takes us to the end of the Bible as well. In the beginning, the tree of life was in the middle of the Garden of Eden. But in the first creation, the way to it is blocked because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But in the new creation, we see the tree of life Again, and in the new creation, those blocks have been removed. And they've been removed because of the blood of Jesus. By the death of Jesus, the blocks have been removed. So I ask as I close, what then is this tree of life? Well, who is the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus himself. Can I offer that the tree is Jesus? That the one who hung on the tree is the tree. Come to me and eat and drink, Jesus invites. And therefore, his promise, please hear the sweetness of this as we, as we wrap up. His, his promise to first love lovers is more of himself and forevermore. That's the promise. And who wouldn't want to eat from that tree? Amen? Who wouldn't want to eat from that tree? Let me pray. And so again, Spirit of God, I pray that we would have ears to hear what you, you are saying to us today by way of, 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 of your word, that you, you inspired, that, that, that you filled, that you speak through. May we have good ears, not just mere hearers of it either, but doers of it, doers of it. Obedient to leave what you're calling us to leave and go to where you're calling us to go. Whatever you, whatever you have called us to, I pray we would be listeners and doers of it. For, for the sake of this ministry, but also for what this ministry is about as it seeks to extend the gospel into this community. We love you, we thank you, we bless your name. In Jesus, your name we pray, amen.